Hi. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to How to Practice. Yay! This week, we were talking about motives in relationship to like motivation Mm. what motivates you and this is actually once you decided once you decided once we decided you suggested and we agreed to do this episode i've been thinking about it a lot like what motivates me because i will say like i you know i run into the same doors or walls or whatever ceilings over and over again uh very similar frustrations um And, but I keep going and I think, you know, not to get like too romantic, but like, if I tell you my motivations are the power of art, is that cheesy? It is right. I'm surprised I just came out of you. I know. I was really surprised. Like in, in this introspective time of thinking about this, I really think it is the transformative power of art. Is what motivates me. And I am, I'm very surprised that that is where I got to. I can say that what motivates me is I love our world. Like I uh, wholeheartedly, I love the art world. And I, I know this. First off, because I have a 300-page dissertation writing about (laughs) the art world. And many times during the two years and 10 months when I was writing my book, I was like, why am I doing this? It's so hard. It's hard because the theory is hard, lacing everything with theory is hard, and then going to collect data and like trying to make sense of it. Like all of it was just so foreign to me. Um. But the one thread is that I love the art world. I love art. I love making. I love being an artist. I love understanding how all the pieces fit together within the ecosystem and being able to understand that it is an ecosystem and not necessarily thinking that it's a one-sided conversation despite the fact that I think a lot of times it feels like it is, Mm -hmm. but not looking at it from a macro sense, I think sort of like makes you feel that way. And so for me, having gone to, to art school and then went into more art school and then left art school completely graduating and like not doing anything in the art world, And there was always like this piece of me that was just missing. And that's super cheesy. But I think as somebody who, anyone who's been trained in the arts and you really love that like craft making and using your hands and the skills and applying knowledge and seeing the world, like I missed it. I just feel like I wasn't me. And I had to like claw my way back into an art world in Hong Kong And then from there, I was like, that's it. Like, this is just, I can't not have this in my life. Like, I have to find a way for me to get into this because 
I just, I can't not have this. I can't not be part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think like partly you know, in like the super romanticized way of thinking it, it's just that it's like people are like, oh, you really need to like make stuff for like the love of it because you're never going to make money out of it as a maker and it's expensive. But I was so determined to go and really understand that relationship between someone who's trained in the arts wanting to get into the art world and and the rejections like what is the root cause of this what is the relationship between the two so you know I did that and I I love the art world like I love and anyone who and I love knowledge so it's like how do you apply all these things like this is why I read so much this is why I watch so much stuff it's because like the larger economy funnels into the art world because obviously like money and like how how do we all fit into that like what is the what are the pieces how do we look at them are we looking at it from one angle or another angle like and I really just find that to be really interesting for me it is it's so multifaceted the ways that you can squirrel your way in you know because you can do the all of a sudden I'm a romantic you know poet of like the love of the transformative nature of art or you can come in and do you know a super micro economic interest of like how does like an artist like make their money to get to the point of a gallery who's like doing their like finances and what that means in comparison to in auction house you know or you can have oh i'm i'm really into um because we, you know, we can talk to Jesse McKee, you know, climate change. What are artists doing to communicate that and to confront our issues with that right now? And you can come in from like an activist point of view. You can come in from a interior design point of view because you want something that looks nice above your couch. Uh, you can come in from a crafting point of view because you're really into like meticulous artisan, you know, craftsmanship. And that's like how you got into jean shin you know and like the crazy things she makes out of like prescription bottles um it's so interesting and then or you can come in super academically and be like what about like theory and how can that apply to you know this artist or this transaction or this show and it's so exciting because we all can come in from these different trails these different paths Mm -hmm. and we all end up in the middle we all end up in the same place and it's such an if we're ex- lucky if we lucky then we can all meet somewhere exactly yes yeah. and that's really exciting because i think that that can be a crossroads for communication for empathy for knowledge building for insight and for a very you know selfish interpretation of this for learning about the transformative nature of art but that can all be transformative if you can be confronted with a piece that can like change your mind and or a point of view and you know open your heart or your mind or your soul because you came in through academia or you became in through aesthetic based interests or you came in through you know economic interests then or social and then you're, you know, you can't be surrounded by the things that you're surrounded by in the art world for long enough. Like, it's so easy to be jaded because I am jaded so much. I see so much stuff, so many previews, so many shows. I mean, not as much now, but, you know, normally that it's, 
it's easy to forget, you know, why artists make what they make and how we, you know, use that to like grow, but you can't be so exposed all the time and not be touched. No, I think that's true. And I think this week we spoke with Jesse and super interesting conversation. And I think what is, I've actually never thought about this before, but as I was listening to him talk about his work, I was like, oh, it's so interesting to think that Vancouver has shaped so much of the way I want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say this in in the interview about maybe it's the land, maybe it's just like the vastness of what the West Coast is like. And, you know, like one thing that I always think about when I go home, it's like trees. We have a lot of trees. Trees and clean air. And I always think about trees, clean air, mountains. That's what mm-hmm. like, we have a lot of. But that sense of like the holistic way of looking at things and approaching things and and that ecosystem, how things fit in with each other. I've never really considered how Vancouver could actually have shaped the way I wanted to go and exist in the art world. Because I think most of the time when people look at it, it is very singular. Mm-hmm. And the motivation, Some I think when you go to art school, the motivation is for you to get represented in like whatever capacity, but it's such a, it's such an abstract thought because it's like, I don't, where I'm going to find this like mystical unicorn. I always think that it's just like, I don't know. It's like, I'm here. Like, come find me. (laughs) Like, who are you? And they all, and like, you know, we, we say that a lot as well in art school. It's just like, yeah, you're just gonna, someone's going to come find you or you're going to have to go and find them. And you're just like, okay. But like, I didn't realize that there's a thing tattooed on your forehead saying like, that's it. I'm looking for Erica Wong. Are you Erica Wong from Vancouver? Right. I guess I don't know where to find you. Right. It's like literally like Evan Trine's how he got a gallery. Um, But it's also funny because when we talked to Evan Trine last week and he did have the gallerists come up saying, do you know this artist? And he said, oh yes, that's me. Um, he also admitted still that like even long-term he doesn't know how to find other dealers or curators or how to interact. So it's even when you get the, the unicorn representation doesn't necessarily mean that the work has stopped. It is so interesting to me because I didn't go to art school and I mean, not that they really, an art history major, you know, set me up with, you know, physics background set me up for finding, you know, art jobs, but it's incredible how much these like schools that are really supposed to train you to be out in the world do not train you how to be out in the world. They train you to be an artist, but only in that like very romantic sense of the world. But like I'm coming in apparently with my motivations, but not with any sort of like practical advice on how to actually survive as an artist. No, we know it's not, it's not, I don't know if it's a bit of like, the chicken and the egg it's partly Mm -hmm. they don't teach it but I think it's also there's some sort of way to shape your mind to think that if I talk to you about money from the get-go then it alters the way you want to make so then therefore we're all this like lone genius starving 
eating tins of beans because we've got no money because we've now spent all our money on material and no one tells you how expensive material is and material is so, so expensive. expensive. <laughs> like, oh, I can't even explain to people. They're just like, what do you mean? You don't, you don't need anything. It's like the overhead costs. Like, I cannot even like, if I had to list it out for you on a spreadsheet, you would be like, what? Um, Oh, and I, I had to learn that the hard way when, you know, like you install in space with one thing and you're buying hundreds and hundreds of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Even when you're getting it at a wholesale price, it's still very, very expensive. No, it adds up. So, I mean, when I, I worked for a gallery that represented Tara Donovan, um, and when you're getting a room full of plastic cups, it... Yeah. Yeah, they're plastic cups, but it's a lot of cups. It's a lot of straight pins. It's a lot of toothpicks. Yeah, and she was one of the first artists that really inspired me to make the installations that I make. So that's why it's like the one material. And very quickly, you're like, oh, oh my God. You, you really recognize the space itself how space is significantly larger when you when your medium is space and then you're like wow this is really expensive even if it's a cheap material it's just it really kind of shifts that perspective and and I think that's like at the end of the day the the thread of it all is that you have to really love what you do and I know that is again super cheesy but I really think that I've what I've learned is that when you love it so much and you want to find some sort of a conversation in a different capacity, like you really have to love it because you will somehow just look the other way and be like, I know you exist. I'm going to go and do this. And it sounds super counterintuitive because I literally had people say to me, you do understand that you like are running into the wall every time. Yeah. You keep running into the wall. And it's not like as if you run into the wall at like a relatively slow speed. You're literally just ramming into it repeatedly. And I'm like, I am aware of this. Mm-hmm. And, there, and, you know, the comment is just like, it makes no sense. Then why do you keep the- doing it? What's the that common like very Tumblr era definition of insanity? You know, it's yeah. like you keep you doing keep the same doing the thing, same thing for and different a different outcome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And that's funny though, because this is it kind of ties into what Jesse's doing and it's tied into like a lot of things that I've been thinking about lately as people are really like changing things like on like a fundamental level. And you know, I in my own little small ways, I've been willing to like hit those walls again and again and again but in bigger ways I've decided I wasn't I mean it's literally why I left the stem fields I didn't want to deal with like the inherent misogyny of it all and there are some women in the stem fields doing incredible work against it and they were willing to push their career through it and like to them you know kudos like that was just not a fight I could fight and I think about like what you know, some of these like art institutions or like artist run spaces like 221A and, you know, other places like, you know, 18th Street Arts here in LA or Underground Museum. And it's so amazing, like how they are just, you know, going up against or like even like art, you know, 
curators who are definitely like younger than me. There's a um, museum mammy on Instagram and brown girl curator on Instagram. I'm, you know, they're really questioning these institutions and they're going up against the big guys and it's so exciting and it's so admirable and their motivations, you know, could not be clearer or better and they're fucking making changes. And it's so incredible to me to like see that because it was just like, was I scared to not go bigger? Was it just, is it not in my nature? Is it too, you know, is it my generation of, you know, being older and being taught that like, these are the way things are. Is this my Texas showing of like, Oh, like I'm just still just like a little girl. And like, you'll never understand how these things work. I don't even know. I think it's all of the above. Like, I think it's it's all of the above and that becomes your symbolic capital in like a super academic way of saying things. But I think that I came to that conclusion. It's because I had a conversation with a student of mine and I said, it's so interesting because you, you guys as like a generation, the 20, the early 20 something year olds in their third year of university, I'm like, you guys don't really speak up. You don't, you don't ask questions. And I'm like, is it because I'm unapproachable? And the student was like, no, it's just that we aren't taught to actually say anything. And I was like, oh, that's super interesting because we were taught differently. I mean, at least in the, in the institutions I went to, we were taught to have that opinion. That was like why you paid for your tuition is to go and generate that very sharp tongue and hopefully well-read opinion to go and scream on the rooftop and be like, this is what I think. This is Mm -hmm. what I see. This is like the type of art that I make because like, this is how I interact with the rest of the world, even if I'm super introverted. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, no, that's a, that's a millennial thing. We, we don't do that. So I was like, okay, noted. Um, So I think it's an all of the above, you know, like the way that we are shaped with our upbringings and culture and identity therefore makes us potentially persevere in the industry because that's another thing as well isn't it mm-hmm. it's like you're motivated because you there is probably a part of you that just love it for whatever it is whatever yeah. the it is yeah no i think you're right and i think that like the idea that I mean, it's, and then back to my little romantic nature or notion is that it is, this is something of worth, you know, I, I have only, I haven't gotten to see a lot of art, art in person, obviously recently, but like the last, this last week I saw, you know, a couple pieces in person and on like, you know, video pieces online and you know, this is the kind of stuff that can communicate ideas and feelings in ways to, for, I mean, for me, it's just, it's just my language, you know, like this is how I like to receive information. Um, and I feel like it can be a way to like communicate these ideas, like on a bigger scale as well. And it's, and I think it's a worthy cause, man. 
to keep fighting. Okay, this I think fight. like the in conclusion is in that conclusion. we both love it. Yeah, you're like, okay, let's just keep the same reasons, but yeah. like in a different on a different perspective for the nature of like what we do. This is a really good good place to say like what we have read and what we've seen and what we've watched this week because I find that as you're saying that you're you're seeing more as things the rules are relaxing and you know like London is open I actually find that I'm I'm retreating I'm actually wanting to see less Mm -hmm. and my attention span it's either that or like the blue light really is just making my brain just paralyzed at this point but I find that I didn't even go and look at the Art Basel. I didn't look at one. I didn't. I didn't look at. I didn't even click on it. I was like, I oh, didn't. okay. I, like I got some. I got some very good previews, and I, you know, did my due diligence with those. But I did not. I mean, there was like other things happening. And Tim's. And Tim's. I don't know if you read his article. It was just. It was so funny because it. It was exactly how I felt. It was like, yeah, no, like this is this fair fatigue thing online. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I actually found that I am now just going back to researching to go and make my next piece yeah. because it's just like there's just so much happening that it's like brain cannot compute at this point. There's just no. too much like information that just can come at you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said for that also is that there doesn't feel to be any finite finish to any of these things. I will say like we were going to fairs and we're doing things, but like after you left New York or Hong Kong or Mexico city or LA, it was done. The, mm-hmm. the basil was done. At the least you have, like done. The, you have the buffer on, in the traveling. You know, exactly. Like, you had, I now I'm checking into my flight. I'm now getting on an airplane. Is, exactly and then it's done and you don't have to look at it again but like you've got the week leading up to basil and then it's like the vip preview which is so so silly for digital stuff and then the digital things and the emails and i just started marking all of my basil emails as red like when you're updating me that you're putting new things up in the in the booth like i don't like how am i supposed I to i read the numbers I, I read the reports yeah. to see what was sold and who it was coming out of not like only the artists, but like which galleries yeah. were selling stuff. And I think that was a really good indication. And and I think the numbers right now are more interesting as we're gearing towards the one auction. I think like in terms of that, you know, like I tweeted yesterday to say, well, are you going to be spending $60 million on a bacon triptych? Personally, it's on, it's on auction though. I already have one, so I don't need another one, so I won't be. But you know, I know people who don't have them, so someone's gotta. <laughs> but the thing, what's really interesting in the article was just like, well, don't forget, you're doing this online, mm-hmm. so you're paying for a sixty million dollar Francis Bacon triptych online, which but- you have never seen before. I counter to that devil's advocate the person was never buying it ever it's always been the advisor on the phone or somebody it's always been a proxy it's never been the money in the room um 
rarely does the money ever actually see the piece. And when you're buying a 60 million Francis Bacon triptych, like, you know what you're seeing because either you saw it at your friend's house, you saw it at that show. It's not a new piece because this is the thing that I think that even though we're seeing that, you know, the Mark Bradford sells from 5 million, the condo sells for 2 million. This is all great numbers, but those numbers were always going to happen anyway. And those pieces were never seen. You know, the people who are buying this stuff never sees it in person and they never, or they've like, you know, you've seen enough of the artist that you know what you're getting. Um, that it's not, you know, it's not crazy. It's the same way of, you know, spending $10,000 on Louis Vuitton luggage, which, you know, is a lot for luggage or maybe it's not, but like, you you know what you're getting. You know, someone can absolutely click yes on Net-A-Porter or Louis Vuitton.com and they're just like, oh yeah, I know what I'm going to get. Like, I know the quality of this. Well, fair enough. At that level, like, you know, yes, there are better Bacons. Yes, there are better Basquiat's. Yes, there are better Bradford's. Um, that's just the nature of creating things. But the, when you, you know, you can see enough in an image. And if you have the art, well, of course you have the art advisor or multiple, you have the auction house doing those things and the the money was never going to be in the room. You know, the person who wants to spend $60 million on a Francis Bacon triptych has been waiting for a triptych to come up on auction for three years. Fair enough. But I suppose the only contribution that I have to this conversation, not, not about the, the bacon triptych, but about what I've read, what I've seen, what I've watched, is that the Met Brewer isn't going to reopen again. Oh, should have missed the, that. What? Yeah, when they, I think financial reasons, they're just, the Met has decided that when they open at the end of, August, I think it's August 28th that they're going to be opening, that the Met Brewer will not be opening. And instead, it's going to be housing. It will be the temporary housing for the Freak, Frick? I'm not saying this correctly. The Frick collection instead. Um, And I was was very surprised to read that. Uh, It's, for me, when I saw that, that was a really big deal. It's, I don't know if people are, are, are familiar with, so the Met obviously is a very large institution where it's a really big museum, but the Met Brewer is an extension, if I can even call it that, of the Met, and it had more contemporary works, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm saying this correctly. And it's in a different location altogether, like they're not like next to each other or anything. Um, but Beautiful building. Yeah, the Brutalist building. And obviously, for overhead costs and everything, and this is why I understand why a lot of institutions in New York specifically are suing the landlords for saying that they have to pay for rent because nothing is happening and they basically cannot afford rent. But yeah, so the Met Brewer will not be opening back up. Um, And that I guess for me is an indication to say that even one of these very large institutions just cannot make it work. Um, they were say, also one of the first ones to close. So close because of COVID, not close because they've like gone out of business. It's bonkers to me. The Met Museum has an endowment of $3.4 billion. Their annual operating budget is $320 million. 
But really, um, realistically, you know, the number sounds really big, but actually it's not because they generate a lot of income with tourists, people who, who are buying souvenirs and people who are paying for admission, even though they have very fine print to say that's actually by donation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they do, they do charge and, and that serves a purpose. But yeah, so that is like the big piece of stand out news that yeah. I saw this week is that they're not going to be opening back up. No, that's really, that really, I, last time I was in New York, I had just, I think it was a, oh gosh, what's his name? It's a beautiful show. German artist, very abstract expressionisty, but like landscapes, not Albert Olin, whatever. It doesn't matter. It was a gorgeous show and the building is beautiful. Um, oh my gosh. I'm so sad. Well, I... Ugh. It takes the wind out of you, doesn't it? Like, re- I saw that and I was like... I'm, yeah, I'm like, I'm like physically affected by this. Yeah. This is like really... Because it's, I you know, it's one up. of those things that's just like... I mean, I'm just, I'm doing like math on my on my phone, like really quick while you're talking about this. And it's if it's, they've got a 340 million, 320 million a- annual operating bid budget. Half is from the endowment. That means $160 million is earned from other revenue sources. Um, and then if you divide that by 12, that's $13 million a month times four months closed. That's $53 million in comparison to 3.4 billion. That doesn't feel like a lot of money, but I know that, you know, endowments are right. They're earning at the same time. So I'm not saying that they're ever going to break even, but at least they're earning. So like, you're not going into the red. I know, but like, isn't this the time to go into the fucking red? Well, I think that they have, and therefore that's why they've decided that that they can't sustain it. Mm, Just, it's just so crazy to me because it's just like, what? And then, but then like, how is the Frick not going? I mean, I guess the Frick isn't as, I mean, I've been to the Frick a few times and it's never been so crazy popping like the Met, but it's, you know, it's still, it's a big space and, you know, really beautiful art and conservation issues and, you know, those kinds of registrar costs i get it oh my gosh i am like so heartbroken about the brewer i guess it's also it's like a newer space and it's not like the Mm. mets like lacking space um i can't say that i've ever been through the entire museum no i definitely have not and i've Um, tried i've tried i've tried uh but i run out of time or i get lost um or you just get so tired (laughs) i get tired or like a part of it's closed because of installation um inevitably but damn wow Fuck. Excuse my French. Well, I guess I was, you know. Things oh, I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> so now sorry. I'm like sad. I'm like Eeyore over here. Oh. Um, well, all right. I'll try to perk myself up. I saw two pieces of art this week that really fucking fed my soul. Um, Mocha had for 48 hours, 72 hours uh, up on their website, Arthur Jaffa's, I believe it's 2016 film uh love is the message and the message is death love is the message the message is death and it's like an eight minute film and it's just like the agony and ecstasy of being black in america and it's so well done um i mean 
or the drop is a genius, but it's just, it's so like, this is what I talk about, like the transformative, like nature of art is like, you can like watch this and it's just so much is just poured directly into your heart and into your soul and into your brain space that you can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop like seeing it in your head. And it really, it really shifts things, really shakes things up in, you know, a really beautiful, really difficult way. Um, And that was a real, you know, super difficult but fucking joy to have happen um and then the other piece i saw is i had to go pick up an, a piece from an artist here in la fawn rogers and she showed me her new film installation and fuck fuck man it's just so good to see like what she's it's all about consumption and sex and humans and she's she really comes at it from a very I don't want to say anthropological, but like, she just really, she's a very neutral viewer and the way she communicates visually and sonically and installation wise is so clean and concise. And it's just to sit there for 20 minutes and watch this film and be like, Oh yeah, this is something that I can do or I have done and will do again, people are missing right now is, was really interesting to have like that, like kind of like layered, especially since we've all been kind of not, the piece was definitely about like consumption um, and kind of like capitalism a little bit through oysters and pearls and sea life is very, I'm butchering the description of it, but the, to be able to see that while I've been, well, we've all been kind of like not participating in like society, capitalist economy, the way we normally do because of quarantine was really interesting because it is like, I think about these pearls that are being harvested and how and why. And, you know, I think about not that I have any pearls, but it like the jewelry I have and if, and when I'm going to be wearing it again, do I need any more jewelry? Did I ever need that jewelry in the first place? What so reflective it's this so week. fucking reflective this week it's been awesome and hard but it's good but it's been but it's it's just but this is the kind of thing where like you you know it's one thing for me to read an article about the negative impacts of you know the pearl industry on the environment and then it's another thing to watch how it gets done and how many have to be harvested to make a necklace, to make some, you know, things that you just see walking down the runway. Cause I also, you know, we've talked about it before. Both of us are very interested in fashion as well. And it's, it's just so, it's, it's just so different to see it, the numbers. And I think a lot of people are numb to numbers. I know I'm absolutely numb to numbers. I think it's hard to like fathom what it means that 120,000 people have died of COVID. Um, especially when you think about like the numbers that you see about people who died from smoking or breast cancer. Like I, I know how some of the people who are like fuck masks are thinking because they're like, well, 300,000 people died from the flu or whatever the numbers are. Why is this different? And I know why it's different. You know why it's different. I'm not going to like get into that, but it's hard to see like numbers in an article where they're like, this is what it means to have a decimated oyster bed and then it's another thing to see an oyster bed be decimated in like an artful, not like trauma porn kind of way. Um, and 
so I think that's probably a little bit of why like this transformative like communication nature of art is like so incredible because you can it's a it's a very loving way no matter what no matter what the message is to be communicated to because art even if it's an angry piece or a hateful piece or a grieving piece to make art I think is is a very loving act there's time and care and attention and to be on the other side of that love and care and of attention no matter what the message is I think is a really really beautiful thing yeah I, that twice I think this week. that sense sense of the the transformation and looking at things at a different capacity which brings us to our interview I think it's a really good place to go mm. and yeah. say we we were having a chat this week with Jesse McKee and he's the head of strategy at 221A in Vancouver, which is our artist run center. And Jesse brings in a lot of different perspectives um, and how that sense of the transformative and actively strategizing programs to do things differently and just sort of knowing the, the ecosystem around an arc, an artist run center and what does that mean and the responsibility that you take um what you want to go and do with that how you can go and make a difference to really be transformative and the motivation yeah. of of an organization like that i think is very different absolutely um a lot of really good lessons and motivation for me motivation for all of us um erica where can our listeners find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Instagram to practice a practice, T-O-P-R-A-C-T-I-S-E-A-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E. Boom. And I'm hide or die, H-Y-D-E or die. D as in die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a monster. Thank you guys for listening to me anyway. All right. Uh, enjoy our next episode with interview with Jesse McKee and until next time bye thanks